difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Genevieve Kosky. And Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson is on the mothership tonight, recording the epic Top Films of 2017 podcast with the Film Spotting crew, but she'll be back next time. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're riding our two speeds over cobblestone, eating apricots and gelato, and tanning our pale undercoats on the Mediterranean with two films about forbidden passion in Italian summer. It's December in Chicago, Genevieve, so this sounds like a much-needed vacation for us. I wouldn't pack your bags just yet, Scott, because it's not all fun in the sun. While this week's films might make the Italian tourist board happy, their characters are wrapped up in secret desires, heartbreak, and even murder. Anthony Minghella's 1999 thriller, The Talented Mr. Ripley, transforms Patricia Highsmith's novel into a story of sublimated gay desire as an American con artist travels to Italy to lure a shipping heir back to the States, but falls in love with him instead. The new coming-of-age drama, Call Me By Your Name, is also about an American visitor overseas, but this time he's the object of lust for a 17-year-old who's trying to come to terms with his sexuality. In both films, all that surface beauty masks a private pain. I'm going to cling to the surface beauty part, Genevieve, (laughs) uh, because it's really cold and gray right now. (laughs) On the first half of this week's episode, we'll look at the talented Mr. Ripley and discuss how Minghella turns the cold calculation of a chameleonic charlatan into the covetous cravings of the consummate changeling. Then later in the week, we'll stop with the tortured alliteration and consider the bittersweet love story at the heart of Call Me By Your Name and what it reveals about the sensitive teenager who swept up by it. But after the break, we'll address the age-old question, jazz, the great American art form, or insolent noise? Dickie Greenlee? It's Tom. Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley? We were at Princeton together. Did we know each other? Sorry, what is it? Ripley. How do you do? We'll just be for a little while. No, I like him. Marge, you like everybody. Marge, you like everybody. You uh, stay at Dickie's house, eat Dickie's food, wear his clothes, and his father picks up the tab. What did you actually do in New York? Telling lies, forging signatures, uh, impersonating practically anybody. What? I wish I could live Dickie's life for him. I know what I would do. Did I know you at Princeton, Tom? I don't think I did, did I? I always thought it'd be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. Why is it that when men play, they always play at killing each other? I feel like I've been handed a new life. I wouldn't have cared what anyone thought. Everybody should have one talent. What's yours? Back in 1997, when Matt Damon first broke through as a star with Goodwill Hunting, 
The New Yorker film critic Anthony Lane dismissed him as someone who couldn't pass for Cary Grant's bellboy, much less leading man material. The line was intended as one of Lane's signature quips, but it's inadvertently a great insight into Damon's particular strengths as an actor. He doesn't carry himself with the confidence of a handsome movie star like Cary Grant, or even his buddy Ben Affleck. He specializes in characters who are ambitious but half-formed and restless, always looking to become someone that they're not. He's the janitor-turned-savant mathematician in Goodwill Hunting. He's the doughy middle manager who wants to be a secret agent in The Informant. He's the blank slate who's searching for himself in the Born Identity movies. Tom Ripley was the role Matt Damon was born to play. In Anthony Minghella's bold conception of the Patricia Highsmith character, Ripley is a tragic figure who longs for happiness and intimacy and connection, but feels he needs to negate himself to get where he needs to go. As he says, quote, I always thought it would be better to be a fake somebody than a real nobody. And Minghella emphasizes that his Mr. Ripley is talented, certainly more so than Dickie Greenleaf, the shipping heir played by Jude Law, whose only talents, according to his father, is for spending his allowance. As Ripley cheekily confesses to Dickie and his girlfriend Marge, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, he's good at telling lies, forging signatures, and imitating almost anybody, but the talent of Mr. Ripley doesn't just leave it at that. We can appreciate the hard work and imagination Ripley puts into inserting himself into Dickie's life, not to bring him home, as he's been asked, but to attach himself like a barnacle to Dickie's wealth and freewheeling lifestyle. And later, once Dickie's dead, we can appreciate Ripley's ingenuity in running a con that allows him to claim that life for himself. And on the merits, he deserves it. Ripley can hustle his way into doing anything, while Dickie is a poser who can't even blow a decent saxophone. Highsmith's novel was adapted before by René Clément in 1960's Purple Noon, which starred Elaine Delon as Ripley, but there's a soul to Mengele's interpretation that departs from the 1960 film, and from the book, too. Ripley does indeed become fixated on Greenleaf in all three versions, and Greenleaf does eventually grow cruel and abusive toward him when he feels stifled by the relationship. But Damon's Ripley wants desperately to be known and accepted for who he is. Gay, for one, but also somebody whose transgressions have now gone beyond the capacity of anyone to understand and forgive. The tragedy of the talent of Mr. Ripley is that his sins are a barrier to the intimacy that he longs to have. Minghella opens and closes the film with a shot of Ripley in profile, all alone after having to strangle the man he loves. And the silhouette of Damon in the dark room is so haunting because it resembles an empty canvas, somebody who has the talent to assume another identity, but is himself faceless. That makes him dangerous. We know that because we watched him murder three people. But he's also tossed us the key to that dark room in the basement. And we can feel the loneliness of the man locked inside. I don't believe that letter, do you? Dickie's letter. Do you believe it? I don't know what to believe. Can you imagine though, if you did kill Freddie, what that must be like? Just to wake up every morning, I mean, how can you? Just wake up and be a person. Drink your coffee. Well, whatever you do, however terrible, however hurtful, it all makes sense, doesn't it? In your head. You never meet anybody who thinks they're a bad person. No, no, but you're still tormented. I mean, you must be. You've killed someone. Don't you just take the past and put it in a room in the basement and lock the door and never go in there? That's what I do. God, yes. Of course, in my case, it's probably a whole building. And then you meet someone special, and all you want to do is toss them the key. Say, open up, step inside. But you can't, because it's dark, and there are demons. 
anybody saw how ugly it is. Now that's the music talking. It's harder to be bleak if you're playing knees up, Mother Brown. Okay, so this movie came out in 1999, which was my first year as a professional film critic. And so 1999 was a very special year for me uh, in that respect, and also in that it was a particularly great year for movies. So I have a, a real fondness for Talent, Mr. Ripley, which was a, one of my favorite films of a very special year. But I want to ask you all about your history with this film and how it holds up for you. Well, the year was 1999, and I was just able to hire a young film critic named Scott Tobias as a full-time young. employee. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it was a great year, and this was part, this was part of it. And, and uh, it came out pretty late in the year, too, right? There's sort of like an, and also this uh, quality to it, uh, if, right. I, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. It was like uh, the phantom thread of that year. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> Boy, was I uh, happy to revisit it. I liked it then. I'd forgotten perhaps how much I liked it. And I'm sure we'll get into this later, but seeing this cast at this period in their career after knowing what's to come is certainly interesting as well. Yeah. Scott, do you really want me to tell you how old I was when no. this movie came out? Oh, my gosh. You, why do you always frame be... this that way? I so shouldn't. I have to do Well, this. I was... <laughs> I, I was a freshman in high school, okay. but um, I this is my second time seeing this movie. I don't think I saw it when it came out. It was probably a couple years after that, possibly even in college. Um, you were not you were not old enough to get into it. <laughs> yes, that that's what was stopping me. I'm sure. No, I I definitely had watched this before and had distinct memories of it being a film that I never wanted to watch again. <laughs> um, and rewatching it this time, I was struck by what a well-crafted, well-wrought this movie is that I absolutely hated watching, <laughs> uh, just for because it is so anxiety-inducing for me. And that's like that's a compliment in the context of this movie. Like I'm not saying this is a bad movie, but it's a good movie that I really don't enjoy watching just because of sort of the empathetic response I have to it, and because it is so adept at making you feel the tension that is building in this web that Ripley is weaving. And like, you know, it's going to snap. And when it does, and then snaps again, and then snaps again, it's just, it's really hard for me to watch. I'm curious to ask, like, where, when do you feel those feelings? But do you feel them toward, you know, they they start when uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Pops okay, up. so so you're concerned more with things getting exposed and then the result of that rather than yeah, I'm, this deception. It's, that it's, it's the con, it's the deception, but it's also kind of the interpersonal relationships that are happening between Dickie and Tom and between Freddie and Tom and Dickie and Marge in the situation and just sort of the, the unspoken resentment that is building and building and Tom still continuing to press against it. Yeah. It just it just kind of from a like social mores perspective it really sets me on edge. Not not to psychoanalyze you, uh, <laughs> but but probably just just in general watching these movies, some of the tension comes from the fact that we are so much Tom's partners in crime in this. Mm-hmm. So much from his perspective, we know his vulnerabilities. He's a dangerous, probably a sociopathic person, but can't help feel from him a little because because the performance is so rich and because we're just there by his shoulders the entire time. And I think to want a bad person to, to not come to a bad end is such a, a wonderful thing that movies can do just mm-hmm. by, by being what the empathy machine sees the Roger Ebert term. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's not, a, it's not a comfortable watch. You're right. Yeah. And I think like the reason it sticks out as such an uncomfortable watch in my mind is because 
it's initially presented as something so lovely and appealing and it draws you in and that is entirely the point and i fall for it you know i fell for it both times clearly and then when the divide happens it's just like oh you got me (laughs) yeah well it's it's kind of that sick feeling of inevitability that Mm -hmm. that things are going to start to unravel you know when freddie does show up it's like he sees right away that Tom Ripley doesn't belong in that world and he has no reservation about pulling on that string or poking at him or doing whatever is necessary to reject Ripley from a world in which he does does not belong. So I I, I get that. I guess my thing, though, I've seen it many times, maybe because I, I actually kind of enjoy being in, in that kind of a situation. Because um, you're a little bit of a sociopath. I'm a little bit of a sociopath. <laughs> and, I, and also, I just think this, the filmmaking is so seductive. I mean, I just mm-hmm. that, that feeling that, you know, summer in Italy thing, and we'll get into that certainly with Call Me By Your Name. It's just so appealing on just a technical level, just like the location work, the photography, the score and the music, you know, the beauty of, of all the, the actors, you mm-hmm. know, it's just like, this is, these are really gorgeous people. And I think they're, I think every single major actor in this is at the absolute peak of their game. I mean, this is Jude Law's best performance, right? I mean, in addition to Damon, I mean, has Jude, Jude Law ever been this good? I like him in AI. But yes, he's, he's, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you, he's, yeah, right. he's great. And, and, and Gwyneth Paltrow is perfectly cast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and Philip Sear Hoffman is just so unnerving. The physicality of that performance, just from like the second he enters the frame, just yeah. the way, like the swagger, but like there's like something just off about it. It's, yeah. He's so officious in his, 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 the way he holds his hand, mm-hmm. his little hand gestures and stuff. I mean, you could say it is, it's mannered, I guess. You could you could maybe criticize that performance nah. as being mannered, why, but why, I, why I would you do that. I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the only thing that throws me is Kate Blanchett, who's, who's great in this, mm-hmm. don't get me wrong. And I think she was probably like 29 when she made this. But to me, she is like permanently 35, 38. Like yeah. Even now, registers as that age to me. And when she was younger, she registered as that age to me, too. Yeah, I had that same brief reaction uh, watching this time of like, Kate Blanchett, this character is too immature for her. <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you know, she just has that innate kind of old Hollywood glamour that I think you kind of associate with more worldly characters than Meredith Logue is. Yeah, she can play the blue blood convincingly. It's true. For, for sure. But what's interesting, and maybe, Keith, maybe you can speak to this a little bit more because you've read the book, have you not? It's been a while, but yeah. And, and you, I think you're familiar with Ripley just broadly, right? Right. Um, I've read a couple of the Ripley So what, what could you say about Minghella's particular take on this character and how it does and doesn't deviate from the novel? It is is truer to the plot than Purple Noon, which which is a great movie as well. Highsmith never shows you this much Ripley. There's never sort of that interiority. He's never this sympathetic. He's definitely more of a cold-blooded sociopath, even in, the, in this first book. And, and more so in the, in the subsequent book I read, and I, I believe even more so as, as the series goes on, boy, I really need to finish that series at some point. <laughs> and, and you're not going to get as deep of a, you're not going to plunge into his psyche as, as deep as this uh, film does. How pronounced is the sublimated gay desire in the book? Again, it's been a while, and the book yeah. was written in the 50s, but it definitely is expressed as a possibility. I, I believe Marge accuses him, outright mm-hmm. accuses uh, uh, Ripley. Of yeah, Mar- Marge is much more hostile, at mm-hmm. least at least during it, you know, than she is in this film. I mean, obviously, you get to a point in this film where, where she turns on him and doesn't believe him and, and thinks he's done something terrible, but, but she's 
perfectly happy with him being around. And yeah, I don't I mean, get... the changes the the film makes. I wouldn't say they're correcting flaws in the novel so much as taking it toward the vision that Vangelo wants it to be, which is definitely more of a character study than uh, than Highsmith attempts. Which is what a good ad- adaptation does. It takes it uses what it can and makes it into a movie. I mean, I think people forget, or maybe they don't forget, but Mangello was a playwright uh, and, a, mm-hmm. and a, a terrific writer of his in his own right. He did uh, his first feature was uh, a film called Truly Madly Deeply, which is excellent. Uh, and I think it is it's a, just a, such a thoughtful adaptation to hold true, as you say, to the plotting of the Highsmith, but change the emphasis, change the perspective give you a kind of a, a take on Ripley that's a little bit different. And I just, I can't get around, you know, I mean, given what we see him do, it's amazing how much the film holds your sympathy for him right to the, to the end. <laughs> for me, I mean, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe even, that's me I, as a social, I, I, sociopath. I, 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 even at the end, is it, he's an awful, murderous, tragic figure. I mean, you know, this he is going to dwell in the dark for the rest of his life, and he may be very good at it. I mean, there's no sequels to this film version of Ripley, but I can imagine this Ripley going on and doing some of the things that he does in the subsequent Ripley novels. But I think this is the moment of him losing his soul. Yeah. But he starts from a place that so many of us can recognize of just wanting a life that is better for ourselves and, mm-hmm. and aspiring to you know be in love and to have things you don't have and to, to be more charismatic than you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, which is so everything is so easy for Dickie Greenleaf. He's so charismatic and he's got all of this money. But uh, if you talk about talent, <laughs> you know, in the title, I mean, all the talent is is on Ripley's end of this equation. I mean, the way he, he's able to do so many different things and, and he's, he has so many facets. Everybody should have one talent. What's yours? Forging signatures, uh, telling lies, impersonating practically anybody. That's three. Nobody should have more than one talent. Okay. Do an impression. Now? The only talent my son has is for cashing his allowance. What? Oh, I like to sail. Believe me, I love to sail. Instead, I make boats. Stop! Other people sail them. It's too much. You're making all the hairs on my neck stand up. Oh, yes, jazz. Oh, jazz. Let's face it. It's just, uh, it's just insolent noise. I feel like he's here. <laughs> Horrible, like the old bastard's here right now. Good. That's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> but I actually kind of wanted to ask you all about Dickie Greenleaf, because I don't want to, I don't want to totally minimize this character and make him seem like he's just a one-dimensional cad, because I think there's more to him too. Yeah, I mean, he's seductive in his own way, and certainly the world in which he lives is very seductive. And I think the film smartly makes him far more appealing when we first meet him than as it goes along. You know, and certainly in the final moments when we learn some bits of his past we didn't know before. Mm-hmm. First, he seems like a guy who has everything Ripley could ever possibly want. And then you kind of start to wonder why get hung up on someone this creepy who's who doesn't really care for him and and who's isn't particularly you know well talented or not particularly uh, doesn't really have much to call his own except his his name and, and the money that comes with it. 
Yeah, it's that seductive quality mixed with capriciousness, I think, that makes him kind of a dangerous character once he gets around someone. Well, obviously, once he gets around someone like Tom. But I mean, he's a destructive presence in the way that he moves through life and he moves through people that are drawn to him. Like Marge tells us that, that like people are attracted to him just naturally. And we see that go badly with the woman whom he impregnates mm-hmm. and who commits suicide, you know, and but it's just like kind of there in how quickly he gets tired of things and of people and moves on to the next thing. He wants to move on to the next city in Italy. He wants to move on to the next woman. He wants to move on to the next male acquaintance, you, you know, and like, I think you again, when Freddie enters the picture is when you really start to feel the danger of that quality because you see him shift the light, as Marge yeah. calls it, from Tom to Freddie. And that's when, you know, Tom's shadows, you know, c- come into play. It's not Dickie's fault, but it's dangerous when it comes into proximity of someone like Tom. Yeah, that scene is so beautiful. The one you mentioned when they're out on the yacht and Tom's up there alone and Marge kind of comes over to him and, and mm. is sympathetic to his situation, which is that Dickie gives people attention. And when when he gives that attention, you just feel so great. Then he moves on to something else and it puts you in a very cold and lonely place. Uh, but at the same time, one of the things that plays in, in Marge's head is that she knows a side of Dickie that nobody knows, not even Tom or not in, in any of his friends. I mean, that there is, you know, a sensitivity to him in, in a, a love that I suppose that comes through when the two of them are together alone that is key to making Tom's story about what happened not persuasive to her. Do you believe Marge or do you think that she is just also under Dickie's spell? Like, Because we don't really see the, any of those moments between them. We're, we're told of them. And obviously, you know, with Tom as our point of view character, we are inclined to not fully believe them. Oh, I believe her. I believe that the intention to marry was something mm-hmm. real that happened, as she sa- says it was. So I, I take I take that at face value. I think it's probably also we only well we sort of get a glimpse of them behind closed doors, but we never really see them apart from Tom, do we? No, I can think of. So I mean, you know, we really don't know what the relationship is like when he's not around. But we certainly get the sense that she knows him really well and knows all of his flaws and stays with him anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so for all those things to be true, I think there has to be another level to that relationship that maybe we we don't see or we have to take her word for. Yeah, there's also kind of the, you know, maybe it's the way things are done in their social circle that you don't give up on on something that, you know, a, a possible engagement, you don't give up on that quickly. Yeah, Tom's interpretation of their engagement, like, again, he is our point of view character. And, you know, I think you're sort of inclined to take his opinion of things, even when he is clearly, you know, an unreliable uh, protagonist, if ever there was one. Mm -hmm. But like his interpretation of their engagement as a marriage of convenience Mm -hmm. or or however you want to frame it within this upper echelon of American society, you know, is just something that has to be done that is kind of independent of any feelings that they may share. Mm -hmm. Like that feels more real to me. But again, maybe that is just because I'm seeing it through Tom's view. And and I guess it also depends on whether we believe that Dickie does have homosexual impulses. My feeling is is no. My feeling is that Tom completely misreads the situation i think when he talks about come on you know what about when you're taking Mm -hmm. a bath i mean what about that moment you had to feel something and this whole charade about having sex with marge while he was on the boat is some sort of a thing that they all had to 
be around. I don't, I think Tom gets it wrong. (laughs) That's my interpretation anyway. I don't think he's above sensing those impulses in others and exploiting them yes. and using them to, as, as a, as a form of magnetism though. Yes, that is exactly what I, what I, I was yeah, I, I think he was shocked in the, the bathtub. The scene, bathtub I, I think yep. he was shocked only by the uh, overtness of the overture and not the fact that those feelings were there at all. Right. But he would have, I think that would have been a spot where he would have accepted those overtures if, if no, he yeah, no, I don't think, I, I don't think he would ever, I, I think he's willing to push it that far, far, but no further. And even that was a little too far. And I think there's also an element where Tom is so is as good as he is doesn't quite get the role 100 percent right. I mean, and that, those are, that's something that Freddie exposes on multiple occasions. But like, he's, he, you know, he he thinks that he has a read on Dickie, but he doesn't quite have that right. And he thinks he has a he knows how you know a rich person is supposed to act and decorate his home and and be Dickie Greenleaf, but that is a little bit off too. There's something where he's an imposter in those situations as well. And, it, and it's something that he, I mean, there's a degree to which he's socially inept. In my view. The only thing here that looks like Dickie is you. Yeah. And I mean, I think his impersonation of Dickie become like, he can't help it becoming him once Dickie is gone. And once he is like his true self creeps into the impersonation of Dickie he's doing. Like we see that in the, the classical motifs that are coming into his decor, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, the fact that he looks like Dickie, but like he is still Tom, you know, like he can't fully subsume Dickie. I, I kind of am questioning Scott, your characterization okay. of Tom is just a master manipulator con man, because to me, he always seems to be, figuring it out as he goes along like he doesn't have that being able to see the next steps quality that i associate with con man because he's always taken off guard he can improvise really well and he can pivot when someone you know is starting to catch on to his bullshit but it doesn't seem to me that he is ever thinking about the ways in which this can go wrong and accounting for that yeah, maybe not. I, I I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, he does prepare. I mean, he certainly prepares to be a part of Dickie's life, and his in that plotting pays off. As far as like you know, the the I'm talking Jeff. about once he kills Dickie, yeah, and, and like his incredible <laughs> decision to try and become Dickie instead of running away from this horrible crime that he has committed, you know, and hiding out. The con becomes a lot more complex then, and obviously a lot more fraught then, and he doesn't seem to me to have thought that out the same way that he has thought out how he is going to become Dickie's friend or, you know, kind of become part of his world. I think like once it becomes actually taking over Dickie's life as opposed to just being a barnacle. Yeah. He's not. But I I don't think he he, I don't think he anticipates it going where it goes. Of course. Of course. So so he has to at that point he has to start the moment he he hits Dickie with an oar. All plans go out the window, and it becomes a time when he has to improvise constantly. I think the subtext here is Genevieve thinks she could do it better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was thinking it is, about, that's why it made me so uncomfortable because it was just like seeing all on, the things man. he did wrong. You could totally get away with it. So, what do you do? You, do you all share my grand unifying theory of Matt Damon as a as a movie star? I mean, how does someone not fit to be Cary Grant's <laughs> bellboy become a, a movie star of such endurance? I think this movie is an interesting way to kind of meditate on that because it is, you know, among other things, I think it's a movie about acting and and, and what it takes to assume a role. And Damon's had like several different phases of his he's very malleable I, um my first impression of him was as the sort of wasting away and courage under fire and 
you know, more recently in the, like the Bourne movies, he, to borrow a line from a Sharply and Worcester routine, he, he kind of looks like a high school wrestling coach. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's uh, uh, just his, his physical transformation. Over the, and now he's like his current run of films. Is, he's kind of like, you know, sort of doughy and overweight. And he is uh, um, remarkable that just to watch the physical transformations there. But he is a pretty flexible guy. I don't, I don't think there is a... Um, unlike Cary Grant, I don't think there is a, a Matt Damon persona. Yeah, maybe that's it. I think he's lacking a certain magnetism or charismatic personality that we associate with the movie star. But I think his malleable uh, qualities take the place of that. Like, it, it take the place of that when he is paired with the right material. Like for me, the complicating factor in your theory is The Martian, where he is just like, I mean, yeah. he is he is that movie for the most part. It, you know, it is mostly just him and he is kind of holding the screen for so much of that movie. But that is also a movie where there is just so much happening and like there's so much dialogue and you know very quippy fun dialogue that he can deliver well because he does have this sort of like comedic you know form he can take so in terms of like thinking of a movie star as someone who like holds the screen i think the martian complicates your theory but i think in terms of showing that he is an actor who benefits from the right material it does how about this how about this then how about this modification he's somebody who has to sweat <laughs> for the role you know i mean that, yeah. that's something he has to work hard at something that for say jude law in this film comes absolutely mm-hmm. easy yeah. i mean the, the beauty of jude law's performance in this movie is just the utter self-confidence there's not a moment where he yeah I mean, he gets annoyed maybe and yeah. angry but the way he carries himself i mean he carries himself like a rich guy who doesn't you, you have feel to like he's being anything. jude law you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and that he's comfortable in his own skin. Yeah, and and, and with Matt Damon, you have a malleability, as Keith said, and 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 maybe he maybe he just has to hustle a little bit more. So we can make some modifications there, but it is <laughs> he's an intriguing actor, and I do really like this performance especially from him i think it's just the perfect matt damon role he plays into that too i, I think the, and, the, and the movie lets him where, where he's just so good when he's practicing when he's kind of not quite getting the role right ahead of time when he when he you realize you, you, you see the effort he has to put into it and, and like you know just just physically like when, when his hair is not all together there he looks very kind of young and, and and unsure of himself there's there's even something something about his teeth in this movie that feels a little they, <laughs> they seem really big they just really big don't they i don't <laughs> yeah. know if that that was accentuated in <laughs> some way or or not but a little a little off like even when he is shirtless like the first scene on the beach when they you mm. know his pasty undercoat or, or whatever you undercoat, know that's right. like i mean he's he's very fit in this movie you know he's as fit as jude law but it just looks wrong yeah, you know it does. um it's primer yeah yeah and like yeah the paleness is part of that but also it's just kind of how he carries himself in that moment yeah and those swim trunks and everything he's just he looks so he's not preening or you know no i mean and you could and there's no way that dickie greenleaf or jude law is dickie greenleaf it would do just fine in this in yellow swim trunks like that but not matt damon <laughs> you're so white <laughs> you ever see a guy so white march <laughs> gray actually it's just an undercoat <laughs> say again you know, a primer. <laughs> That's fun. Margie likes that. She's so white. Yes, I do. You're not funny. So the character of Peter Smith Kingsley is entirely Mingella's invention. Do you think the film is well served by that character? Yeah, I think it's a deeper film than mm-hmm. it would be without him. I feel like to give Ripley someone that you could actually maybe 
have a shot at happiness with uh, to feel like sort of the, the the absence like whatever he's missing that that makes him somewhat less than human uh, and to, to take that away is a really good choice and makes this a deeper movie than it would be otherwise yeah you need him there to show like the scenario in which this could go well for mm-hmm. for tom you know and like how the the happy ending that he could have even though you know this is going back to what i was saying about it feels like he doesn't he's not thinking ahead like the whole time w- when he's with peter i'm just thinking to myself meredith is still out there dude like meredith <laughs> still thinks you're dickie Greenleaf. like like this is like this a, is a major this is pre-internet though they, they the, could they the, could not run I mean, into it, each it, other if he if he has been in these circles for this long and doesn't realize that everyone is eventually going to run into everyone on some ski trip or at the opera like you know, yeah. that's a huge error uh, on on his part, especially because Meredith and Peter, like, he's seen that they have a relationship. But keep in mind, he's prepared to kill Meredith, and, and, he's, and he can't do it because she's with people. Mm-hmm. That, that's mm-hmm. an inquiry that he makes of her on the on the boat like who's he finds out that she's there with other people i think if she's by herself other people who see him right yeah Yeah, know that yeah exactly so i think but even before they're on that boat i'm I'm screaming that in my head at him (laughs) (laughs) you know like when they're starting to feel each other out in rome it's like dude take care of meredith first (laughs) not in that way (laughs) yeah yeah i agree that peter smith kingsley is a really good invention and i think one of the things i like about that character in particular is that he's sort of a sounding board for Tom to really say how he's feeling, uh, you know, I, I think you know, maybe you could slight the film for suddenly making subtext text and, and having Tom really start to articulate all the stuff about being in a dark room and trying to lock the past away. And you could say maybe Mingela is telling us things that we should figure out on our own, but it's just so affecting to me. To the, those scenes of Tom being able to share as much of himself as possible with peter uh, you know it just makes it that as you say more much richer film for that so uh, uh you know again it's such a model for how you engage with a piece of other someone else's work and adapting a piece of work and just trying to think your way through it and have a take on it and not just translate it but do have a point of view that that that's a little different and 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 uh, a little audacious and you don't throw out the scouring of the Shire and throw in like four different endings to Lord of the Rings to the <laughs> ending that talk. Oh, I'm getting off subject. <laughs> anyway. Well, and we wouldn't have the ending that we do have without uh, that character. And the ending is, you know, for whatever you want to say about making subtext text, like it is really, really affecting. And uh, like, that's partly the character, but it's also just partly the filmmaking, which I really, really like. Yeah, me too, though I, though I don't know. Did you see this movie with an audience in 1999, Keith? I don't sure critics count, so no, I don't I think okay. I saw it. Yeah, I, I, because um, people had a really negative reaction to that ending. Oh, no, I was in Madison then. No, I don't I don't remember the audience reacting. Yeah, it was uh, like one of those things where it was like, ugh, and I, was, I couldn't really figure out why. Um, Is it just like a like a people... happy ending denied? Like that's a very yeah. like simplistic reaction to have to this movie. Yeah. Sorry if anyone listening had that reaction. Please write in and explain to me. <laughs> oh, that would be good. Actually, that would be good if you were like one of the people who was like, uh when the when telling Mr. Ripley ended, why he reacted that way? Because it had like it reminded me of the reaction to one of the films we covered earlier this year. It comes at night, where mm. where the, by the end the small audience I was with had had turned on the on the film in a major way and was very upset 
by the ending, but uh, I think the ending is really nice in the way, and I, and I like how how he bookends it with ha- by giving you that little piece of it at the beginning and then leaving you where you do at the end and you get that nice shot of the closet door closing and on the mirror images and stuff. And that's, that's really good filmmaking. I, well, who, and, and the choice not to like show us the act to just let us hear it. Yeah. And, and, like as we're staring at Tom's face, like that's a really bold choice. I think like forcing us to look at this face as we're hearing that, that horrible act take place. It's well, he's, uh, and he's really kind of asking Peter to give a eulogy for himself in a way because mm-hmm. he's dying as well at, yeah. the, at that moment and uh, he wants to he- hear the best case for him yeah. before before he smothers what's left yeah. of his soul it won't happen but I, now I kind of want to see a Ripley sequel with Matt Damon in the role like one of the later novels or something I don't know yeah I'm fascinated I've, I've never read the Highsmith novel but in, like I'm fascinated by the idea that like this is a character who can have continuing adventures because like I just I feel like this is the end for him, you know. Like I don't see how he continues on once he gets off that boat, but clearly he does. Well, they're not and, jolly adventures. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would guess that. But again, this just goes back to me thinking that Ripley is not like a particularly smooth criminal <laughs> and feeling that he's you know he's going to get what's coming to him. But well, I think Highsmith probably sees him as a pretty smooth criminal. She was apparently with Purple Noon. She mostly approved of the film but did not like that it ends with him being apprehended or mm-hmm. some suggestion he's being apprehended she thought that was pure nonsense <laughs> that, that that it had yeah it was like inserting this morality into uh the story that it, where it didn't belong so it, it was certainly in her mind that he would continue luckily for tom he can always depend on our culture's ongoing belief in female hysteria <laughs> which is really what saves him in the end. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, uh, we'll be right back to get into some feedback on recent episodes. Now it's time for feedback. We got a couple of nice emails about our pairing of Ed Wood and the disaster artist, Keith. Do you want to get us started? Sure. This is excerpted from a long missive from a listener named Josh about So Bad It's Good Cinema. Josh writes, I'm writing in response to the comment that the best bad movies have a certain kind of magic. One of you pointed out that there's often a personal touch to the best bad movies, and that's something I wanted to back up and try to figure out because it's something I've puzzled over for a while now. As someone who loves a lot of trash genre cinema from the 60s and 70s, I've long resisted the idea that movies are so bad, they're good. Some of that just boils down to the fact that I quit believing in guilty pleasures along the way. I like what I like, and sometimes I like it for its insanity or because of some indefinable thing. But over the years, there have been a few so bad it's good movies trotted out as the next big thing, and most of them are just unwatchable. My big example of this is Troll 2, which is entertaining in little YouTube clips, but watching the whole thing is an exercise in tedium, largely because there's nothing interesting going on at all. When you watch Plan 9, there's something oddly heartfelt about the way Wood is paying tribute to Lugosi, even in the insane way he does it, or the way the story is ultimately a plea for peace, one that basically used the same plot as The Day the Earth Stood Still. None of that is to say that Wood was a good filmmaker, but there's an earnestness and openness to his film that something like Troll 2 never had for me. I don't know that I could ever explain that feeling to someone who doesn't watch a lot of movies, but it's the same feeling you get when you see a Tarantino or Scorsese movie, that here is someone who loves cinema and is excited about what they're doing. And it's the same thing that makes The Room work for me. There's no denying that Tommy Wiseau got hurt by a woman and wants to take it out on film. 
and there's also a sense that he wants to comment on all the problems of the world. Look at the bizarre drug dealer sequence. But when Wizzo says, if a lot of people loved each other, the world would be a better place. I should do that in an accent, right? <laughs> uh, I always feel like the applause that greets it is only half ironic. It's a dopey sentiment and out of place, but it's also heartfelt and earnest, putting himself out there in a risky way. And that's what makes the movie special for me. Yes, it's bad and horribly written and gleefully inept, but it's also so evidently a labor of love that I kind of adore it as the personal film that it is. If a lot of people loved each other. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right, I can't do it. So what is everyone? There's a lot to actually unpack here. What does everybody else think? I mean, that was the po- a point that I made. <laughs> that I made. I mean, he said someone, uh, but not as talk- eloquently. As not as not a, not a, not as elegantly, <laughs> and not a, not at this length. But I did feel like the room, and you know, a film like Glenn or Glenda, and I think he makes a good case here for Plan Nine as well. There, there is something personal and distinctive about it that goes beyond just sheer incompetence, and that makes it special. I mean, you look at a film. Like Manos, the Hands of Fate, for example. Have you, have you oh, ever, yes. oh yes, which is which is an MST3K classic. But I I watched Manos, the Hand, Hands of Fate without commentary uh, for a piece I wrote, and it is it's that is tough. That's tough mm-hmm. going because I that doesn't have that doesn't have that personal touch that the other these these other films have. I don't that's think. a better example than Troll Two, I think. No offense to Josh, because I think he makes very good points here. But but I, I find Troll Two pretty entertaining on its own yeah, crazy too. terms because it yeah. is there is something insane happening in any, any moment. If we differ on the specific example, I think the sentiment here is really strong, and I've also. I think we tried. I think we kind of hold our nose as we use the phrase "so bad, so bad it's good" um, in the in the last episode. At least I did, even if you couldn't hear it on the air. Because I, I, um, yeah, I, I kind of nose holding is really doesn't come through that well. Yeah, uh, an what audio do you phone. mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've, I've I've kind of given up on guilty pleasures as well. It's like you know, I, if it if it moves me in some way, you know, I'm I'm for it. Even if you get shamed relentlessly by me, <laughs> what what do you shame me for? What, what do you, I don't know. But I think the trick is to think of bad as an aesthetic quality rather than a quality quality. Mm-hmm. You know, like like a movie can be bad in its execution and its conception and in its performances, but that doesn't make it bad as a film. Does that make sense? Sure. Um, as an experience the, to be to be witnessed. Yeah, the, the the badness is its aesthetic. Yeah, I just I don't I don't think you have a phenomenon like the room happen if it if there isn't something special about it. I, I you know, there are plenty of incompetently made films out there. This has gotten the following that it has. Um you know, has to do with uh, a lot of different things. You know, it being personal most of all. And um I think that's what keeps me coming back to it and keeps midnight movie audiences coming back to it as I, as well. I think there's also, we didn't really get into this, but I think there's sort of, it's truly bad movies or truly unusually bad movies like this are harder to find now because to mm-hmm. most things that get out in the world in some way, there's kind of a baseline competence to them. I mean, there's, there's enough like film school grads working on the technical crew or in the editing bay or, or whatever. And anything that comes out through something that turns up on Netflix, it's probably been through like some sort of purchased by some distributor who saw some profitability in it. And, and the way for, for a truly bad movie, like the room to slip through the machinery and make it to the public eye is I don't think there's as many ways for it to get there as it was in Ed Wood's day. No, maybe not. But we have some more thoughts on this issue. Uh, During our discussion of Edward and the Disaster Artist, we talked about the uncomfortable feeling of watching movies about failed filmmakers. Uh, Listener Gregory from Washington, D.C. has some questions about it. Genevieve? 
Gregory writes, I was interested in your discussion about whether making a biopic about bad movie directors is disrespectful. I recently saw an appearance by both James Franco and Tommy Wiseau on Jimmy Kimmel Live, which made me realize that the subject of the disaster artist was actually able to approve the movie and is apparently involved in its promotion. Ed Wood was dead for over 15 years when Burton's film about him came out. I think the relative recency of the disaster artist subject matter and the fact that the principal character is alive and involved is a major difference between it and Ed Wood. Do you think this affected the production and that Franco had to pull punches, so to speak? And do movies of this kind benefit from greater temporal separation between creator and subject? I don't think Wiseau is there, like, sort of uh, approving every every line or mm-hmm. <laughs> anything. We ran an interview at Uprox. Uh, Mike Ryan did an interview with, with the writers, and it sounds like Wiseau was sort of a force to be contained in some ways. There was the original draft had him doing a scene with Dave Franco, and he insisted he do a scene with James Franco. Um, and you know, it's sort of <laughs> that sort of nonsensical thing was sort of the thing that resulted from it was kind of pushed to the end of the movie, uh, as you saw in the film. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's just sort of like a little, except as it's sort of like a little nudging gag. But uh, the other thing you complained about was the script supervisor, um, played by Seth Rogen, had uh, too much screen time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, a lot of obviously there's a there's a pretty it's a lot easier for filmmakers to make biopics about people who are not not around to complain about mm-hmm. it. So but but Wizzo has also been involved in the promotion of this film, which I think is what is maybe complicating that a bit. But maybe not because Wizzo is also just a publicity. Yeah. Mat. Like I mean, he just likes to have attention paid to him. That is very clear from his public behavior so he doesn't understand why he's getting the attention or where it's coming from yeah like it's hard for me to envision a version of the disaster artist that was would not be willing to go out and talk about just for the sake of being able to go on tv and have attention paid this is entirely to his benefit i mean he's been steering into this curve Mm -hmm. from the beginning um and he's been making money doing it he appears for the you know on behalf of the room all the time and uh, absorbs every crazy question and and audience behavior you know at screening after screening i don't i don't know I mean, I, but at the same time i guess you know the film does push a little bit not not not, not maybe it, it not. does a little bit maybe not as much as the book which i'm currently absorbing via audiobook at genevieve's <laughs> recommendation as yeah. Greg, Greg Sestero. um the other interesting thing in that interview which you should read at uprocks.com because i'm a little self-promotion yeah. here um is uh, that wizzo esque um is that <laughs> the writers have seen the film with wizzo twice and in the second time, he got up to leave to go to the bathroom or whatever during the scene in which James Franco's Tommy abuses the actress playing Lisa on the set. I don't think he wanted to sit through that twice. So maybe maybe some of it's kind of getting through the many layers of self-mythology or whatever that keeps Tommy Wiseau insulated from the rest of the, the world the rest of us live in. But I don't know. I saw a tweet from Tommy Wiseau, who got on Twitter oh, no. for for the, yeah yeah yeah, um, it's all promotion, obviously. Okay. But I believe that's where I saw him tweeting that he ninety nine point nine percent approved of this the disaster artist. Hmm. So go ahead and think to yourself what the point one percent he didn't approve of. Point one percent is this whole really long scene. <laughs> really abusive. He's not very good at math. The percentage wise takes up probably. Exactly. Well, as always, we appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on a future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. 
that wraps up this episode of The Next Picture Show. In part two, we'll bring in Call Me By Your Name and talk over how both these films address pleasure and heartbreak under the Italian sun. Look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, no peeping, Tommy. Tommy, no peeping. We'll see you next time. Americano, Americano, Americano.